You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is your old friend Mike White. We have an interview today with Michael Felsher, the head honcho over at Red Shirt Pictures. He is doing an Indiegogo campaign presently to support his documentary, Just Desserts, The Making of Creep Show. Now, Mike has been doing supplemental features and everything for DVDs and maybe even VHS releases and definitely Blu-rays over the last, gosh, over 10 years. He is also the ultimate film fanatic. If you don't know what that is, definitely stick around and listen to Mike talk about the shooting of a very important IFC show. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and play this interview with Mike Felsher and be sure to go over to Indiegogo and support Just Desserts. We'll have a link over to where that campaign is at our website, projection-booth.com. So I see that you were born in California, but yet you're in Michigan. How long have you been in the state? I moved to Michigan in July of 2000. I was actually I was born in Los Angeles, actually just outside of Los Angeles in La Mirada, California. And I lived there till I was 11. And then my jo- dad got a job transfer with the company he was working for at the time. And it actually took me to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I spent the next 15 years. And then, uh, like I said, in July of 2000, Thanks to, I had been doing an unofficial fan website for Anchor Bay Entertainment back then. This is back in the wild, wild west days of the internet when not every company had a website. So they didn't. And so I was doing like a fan site for them and one thing led to another. And thanks to a couple people there, especially uh, the VP of acquisitions at the time, Jay Douglas, he kind of championed me. And they ended up offering me a full-time position to come up to Troy, Michigan to work there. And I was like, you know, see you later, Charlotte. And uh, I've been here ever since. So how did you get involved doing the special features for them? My position at the company, originally I was brought on as the webmaster, but that quickly evolved and sort of, it was sort of a natural progression. I became sort of a utility infielder. I did a lot of different things. I wrote liner notes. I helped out, you know, I helped acquire assets for artwork and stuff. I would, you know, I was part of the team that would look at the, uh, you know, the, the sleeves going around and QC them and. Uh, it helped with acquisitions in terms of doing research, finding out who owned materials, where materials were, uh, marketing. I ended up helping out in marketing, even marketing manager at a couple titles like Day of the Dead. And I mean, there were it was funny. And I, so my my job had a lot of a lot of different responsibilities, so much so that they ended up changing my title to film information manager, which really didn't mean anything. But it was better than just calling me a webmaster. But as far as the extra features and stuff, that was all handled by a couple different teams out in Los Angeles. Bill Lustig, when he was producing all the stuff for us, he had people like David Gregory doing all that. And then Perry Martin took over once uh, Bill left uh, to go do uh, Blue Underground. And then Perry did all that, all the amazing stuff out there. I did a little short featurette kind of on my own uh, with Linnea Quigley for uh, the first release of my, of uh, night of the demons. And cause she was low. She was going to be at a convention in Cleveland. I figure I, the only way I'm going to be able to prove to anybody that I can do this is just to go do it. And I had learned premiere on my own and cause I'd done a lot of short film work back in high school and I wanted to kind of import that stuff and kind of play with it. So I figured well, I'm just going to go shoot this thing and see if I can make it work. And I did. And they acquired it. But the problem was there really wasn't a avenue to do it for them full time because they already had people. They didn't need me. So it was like, OK. And little by little, my position in the company, because they got acquired by you know, the Handelman company who owned them originally, sold them off. Another company picked them up. And at that point, the company was getting kind of streamlined and starting to function more like a regular company. And so my responsibilities started getting shifted off to all the other departments that they normally would have been a part of. And so by the end, when I left, it was really not, I mean, my position was just sort of phased out. I just didn't really have a place at the company anymore. And by that point, they really weren't concentrating that much on the catalog stuff. They were really going after new product. And But I used that as an opportunity to create Redshift Pictures and start doing the supplement stuff full time. And that was April of 2005. So it's been over God, it's been over 10 years now. 
So as Redshirt Pictures, how are you kind of going out and are you pitching special features? Are they calling you or how does that work? Well, back in the day, it was me pitching all the time because also it's hard to it's hard to realize now that 10 years ago, the environment, especially with the studios for doing special features, especially of horror movies, was quite quite a bit different. Back then, the studios were receptive to actually doing a lot with catalog titles because DVD was still just a juggernaut and they hadn't really, the market hadn't really matured yet. So one thing led to another. And you know, when you don't have a reputation, really, you kind of have to just rely on. And the fact that I'd been with anchor Bay for a long period of time meant that I knew a lot of people and I could kind of get my foot in the door in some areas, but it led to me being able to do uh, a, a documentary on the movie effects for uh, synapse films, which was a, a lost Pittsburgh film that, uh, John Harrison produced and Dusty Nelson directed and involved a lot of people who worked on the Romero movies. That turned out really well. That impressed a guy over at Dark Sky Films, which was MPI, and they hired me to do something new for their uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre DVD they were bringing out. That led to this. That, and so it just kind of – that's how that all started. But like, for example, the first studio gig I ever did, which was Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I pitched that the, to them because – it was 2006, I remember, and I just kind of had to put, and that's, this is where my marketing experience at Anchor Bay kind of came into play because I was able to look at it from their perspective and, and pitch to a marketing person at Sony. It was actually Sony at the time because they, they had the MGM catalog for a little time, a little while, and then while I was working on Chainsaw 2, that all transferred over to Fox. But I convinced the person at Sony by saying, look, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is 20 years old this year, the original's coming back out later this year, and... The prequel to the remake is also coming out in theaters later this year as well. It's a perfect opportunity to readdress Chainsaw 2. It's never really been given a proper special edition. I can do this, 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 and this, and this for this amount of money. And they went for it. And so that's how I got my foot in the door on that. And once once uh, Chainsaw 2 hit, I started getting a little bit more. And then once Monster Squad – I think Monster Squad for me was the big one in terms of just being able to really point to that. Because that Lionsgate – Chayla Johnson over Lionsgate, God bless her. She's a big genre fan as well. And when I they had acquired the Republic catalog from Viacom, they had had it for a while, but they got it back. And I told him, I said, you know, Monster Squad's in there somewhere. I know that's one of the titles. And she was like, are you sure? And she looked it up and was like, oh, my God, it is. And they just went – and they went with every idea I had. I got hooked up with a great producer over there, Dustin Dean, who just went – you know, he was became a really big advocate and a great friend. And this thing just and, – and Monster Squad ended up selling beyond anyone's expectations. So that got me into Lionsgate. And then one little by little by little, it just sort of – I had to pitch less and more jobs started not necessarily coming my way, but I was able to get in and actually bid on things that I knew were coming up because people were letting me know. But I still have to – every now and then I still have to kind of, kind of you know, really kind of poke the bear a little bit. But it's hard these days with the studios because the studios – they're license. They're in licensing mode now. They're giving out to the smaller companies because they're not going to be releasing a lot of these smaller titles. They're not going to do prison, and they're not going to do, you know, robot jocks. So they're they're not pitching to them is useless because they're going to end up licensing licensing that out to a, a company like Screen Factory. So that's and I already have established relationships with a lot of these companies. So that's fortunately. I do have a, a sort of a regular stream of things coming into me, but it, it, you always have to keep your eye open for opportunities, and that happens with me all the time. That's sort of a long-winded answer to your question. but I also want to know, though, when you're out there and you're making these things, are you kind of a one-man band, or do you have a small crew with you, or how are you doing this? Back when I was first doing it, it was pretty much just me. Um, when I, cause at first I couldn't afford anybody else. And also I wanted to learn as much about doing the stuff as possible. But I, it was interesting on, I was shooting, I ended up shooting Chainsaw Massacre one, the flesh wounds documentary I did and, uh, Chainsaw two pretty much at the same time. There was a pretty significant overlap between both of those because I was already working on Chainsaw one when Chainsaw two happened, which ended up being fortuitous because it brought me to Austin and I was able to get a lot of stuff done for both at the same time. But I realized that me running around with my camera was fine for certain things. But if I was going to step up my game and do something for the studios and have a, a you know, a really at the time it was a really nice budget, I couldn't just be the one man band with a couple of clamp lights. So I had to start hiring out other people to do really professional work. 
And little by little, that led me into meeting these people and these people and these people and that people. So what you know, the deal is now is I live in Michigan. So most of the work, I would say, I would say about eighty percent of the work I do takes place in Los Angeles. And I, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. I've gone out to Los Angeles many times, but it's expensive for me to go out there. And the budgets these days are extremely small compared to what they were even ten years ago. So it's you're really kind of trying to get it done in terms of quantity by having a lot of projects at once. So I have people out there like Jim Coons and Andrew Cash and you know, uh, you know Rob Galuzzo and all these wonderful people who can go out there and coordinate and shoot all this stuff and they know what I like and I write the questions for them and you know set the specs and for everything that they need to do. And I can get it done for a fraction of the cost but instead of me flying out there and supervising it because every trip that I would take out there is one that's a couple grand out of my budget that I could spend to get a couple of people I really would want in the piece. So it it's nowadays I'm more of like it's it feels like I'm kind of like a ringmaster because I have a I, I've worked with other producers my whole life too. Like Anya liked I worked with her for a number of years and she would call and coordinate people. And I'm working with Heather Buckley right now and she's doing tons of stuff for me. So it's really and I with all the different things that are going on, it's it would be impossible for me to do it once. So I have people all over the country i have people in new york like eddie samuelson and christian mortensen i have people in you know i've we filmed in practically every state and country so it's at this point i have a wonderful network of people that i can reach out to that makes my job easier and also makes my job better because it's not about me being just sitting here behind a computer letting everybody else do the work there's just no practical way for me to go out and do it all and like i said i could go out there to L- you know, if I wanted to go out to L.A. for every single interview I ever wanted to film, I'd be out there every other week, and I don't have the money or the time to do that, and it would end up compromising the project because I don't have that many funds to just kind of charge off on travel. But one thing I have started doing is I film a lot of the interviews here in the Midwest area. If there's something in Toronto, I'll go up and shoot. I can, although I have used other people. One of my longtime cinematographers still lives up in. Uh, uh, Toronto that I shot on the Romero movies with, but I go to like Chicago. I'll go to, uh, you know, anywhere that's within five or six hours of here, which is like about 10 major cities. I'll go and film myself because I know how to do that. Now I'm much better at it and it saves me money. And also I can meet the people and have more of an interactive experience. So it's the, if I answered that question 10 years ago, it would have been done about five minutes ago, but, just, but now, now it's like a network of things. Red shirt pictures has, it's like a spider web that kind of crisscrosses the country a few times. So it's 2015, and you're working on an Indiegogo campaign for Just Desserts, which was the making of Creep Show. Mm-hmm. That was made in 2007. How did that one come about for you? First of all, Creep Show was the first horror movie I ever saw. So that was a huge, big thing for me. I saw it back in 82 or 83, whenever it first came out on video. And my dad showed it to me, and he did something very wonderful. He said, This is fun. It's not real. You can get scared, but it's don't worry. It's not none of this is real. He set the groundwork for me very early on when I was a kid. It's just like have fun, get scared, but don't take any of this stuff too seriously. It's just a movie, and I never had nightmares as a result of anything like that. Or I mean, I was I was able to get into the spirit of it without being you know going out and shooting up somebody because I saw a horror movie or how they or so they say that happens. But anyway, creep show just sparked my love for horror movies and that led to Dawn of the Dead, which led to a lot of other, especially George Romero stuff. And so getting to meet and work with George at Anchor Bay a little bit, because we did several of his movies there, was a really big deal for me. And he was such a warm and ingratiating guy and we actually became kind of friends. And then I ended up going up and supervising the behind the scenes shooting on his last two films, Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead, which, you know, those were just, Survival of the Dead, I mean, I did a documentary about the making of Survival of the Dead, and it wasn't the easiest shoot, but it's like, still, I'm on the set of a George Romero zombie movie, what do I care? Uh, and, Di- and Diary of the Dead, I, every day I was just like, I had this big stupid smile on my face the whole time, because I was just like, I, well, I can't believe I'm here doing this. And during the course of Diary of the Dead, I mentioned to George, I said, you know, they've never done, you know, they've done... Day of the Dead, they've done Dawn of the Dead. Of course, Night of the Living Dead has been talked about to death. But, you know, Warner Brothers doesn't want to do anything with Creepshow. Uh, they've just had a bare bones, you know, release of it out there at all, at all times. And they just don't seem interested. And I said, you know, 2007 is going to be the 25th anniversary of it. 
I said, well, why don't we do something about it or, you know, try to, to, to do, you know, would you be on board? If I got Warner Brothers to participate, would you be on board for doing something for Creepshade? He said, absolutely. That's one of my favorites. So it's like, okay. So I put a proposal together. I put this big, like really colorful, it was actually one of my favorite proposals I ever did because I made it look like a comic book, like an EC comic book, where I just said, here's what we can do for Creepshow and blah, blah, blah. And I got the name of someone over at Warner Brothers to get in front of. And to their credit, they actually did read it and respond to me. And they said, basically, no, really don't think this is anything we want to do right now. Hmm. And Warner Brothers, I mean, nothing against them. I've never worked with them, so I can't say. But they're kind of a closed shop. They do all their stuff kind of in-house. So even if they were going to do something, they probably wouldn't have used me anyway. But Creepshow is just not a title that they've ever really focused on. And it's not – I don't – it would be easy to say, oh, bad studio. How could they not care? Well, you know, they're doing Harry Potter. You know, they're doing they're doing 110 other things. And Creepshow, they know, is going to do a certain amount of money, whether it has a special edition or not. And they're fine with that because they got bigger fish to fry. So I, I get it, uh, especially having worked at, a stu- you know, Anchor Bay and seeing how things work with how other studios treat their product and how we would have to just, you know, distinguish between what we focused on and what we didn't focus on. So I got it. But I was I was disappointed because I felt like, you know, we were going to get so much stuff. And then I kind of had to let it drop. And but what ended up happening was right around the same time, uh, Universal in the UK was getting ready to release Creepshow on DVD. And the reason they had it was because Warner Brothers only had it for the uh, North America. Creepshow was originally produced by Laurel Entertainment, which became part of Spelling Entertainment, which then became part of the Viacom catalog or uh, catalog, kind of like Monster Squad, but through a kind of a different route. And they would license that film out to other territories. And one of the territories they licensed out to was the UK. And Universal picked it up as part of, I think, of a package of a few other titles, too. And I saw that they were bringing it out. And this was like, this was not long before they were going to do it. So it was like maybe six months out. And they already, you know, had the cover up online and everything. And they were ready to kind of go with it. And I thought, you know what? It couldn't hurt. So I found someone at the marketing in Universal in the United Kingdom sent them my proposal and said, look, Warner Brothers has passed on this. Do you want to do something? And they came back and said, absolutely we do. This is great. This is wonderful. And they actually had already started making DVDs they, because the DVD was going to be bare bones. It wasn't even going to be a new transfer. They just gave them whatever Republic gave them. They just took they, – they canceled their release. They just said, no, we're going to stop making this. And, and they, I think they may – I don't know how much product they trashed or how much of it had gotten lost. But there was stuff that was made that they just got rid of. And they just – I went, oh, man. And the problem was going to be – it was going to be very quick to get it done. Not relatively quick. I mean I had about four or five months. But considering how much I had to do, that really wasn't very much time. And also the budget was going to be extremely small because it's just for the UK market. They can't do anything with it outside of that because they don't own the rights. I mean, they only licensed the rights for the UK. Once that was going to be done some years down the line, they wouldn't have any use for the documentary anymore. So we went back and forth on it, and I told him, I said, look, if you can get the budget to this point, I can make it work, but let's just make it, you own it for the UK because that's the market you own anyway. I control the the documentary for the other. And that's not something you can do very often. Certainly not now. There's every, you try to do that. Now the studio just won't even talk to you. They're like, no, we have to own the world because we don't want to have any problems here or problems there with that. No, we just want to own the world and sell it out to, to us outright. But back then their attitude was kind of like, well, yeah, cause we don't, we're never going to own this in any other territory anyway. So what do we care? So they kind of, the exchange was can't give you very much to do anything with it, but you can own it. And I think there in something in the contract was if Warner brothers changed their mind suddenly that they couldn't have it for like a year or something like, I forget what the language was, but basically the language was, is that they own it for the UK. I can control it everywhere else, but I couldn't do anything with it for like a period of a year. They had to let their release from the time their release came out or something to that effect. I forget the language. It's been so long. I haven't bothered to go back and look. So that I felt that was cool. So that gave me an opportunity to exploit it again later on if the if the need came up, and went and shot the doc. And I, I went to Pittsburgh and got George. I mean, you know, George at the time actually he's in he was had already relocated to Toronto, but I went up to Toronto, went to Pittsburgh and shot a whole bunch of stuff there. And a um, couple people. I mean, we we ended up going out to I ended up going out to L.A. Actually, myself went out to L.A. and recorded uh, Adrian Barbeau and uh, Chris. 
Chris Rowe, a, a, a talent manager uh, who was repping George at the time, and he still does actually, he managed to get an interview set up with Ed Harris because I was also going to bank some stuff for possibly doing a Knight Riders doc too. So I talked to him about both of those at the same time and, and we got an amazing amount of people. The only person I didn't get was Stephen King. That was sort of, mm. that was a, that hurt. But I kind of knew going in I wasn't because he he's really cut back on the amount of interviews he does. And he just, I don't, and George even tried to, to get him. George sent, you know, sent him an email saying, please do this, but nothing ever came of it. But the way I, the way the documentary ended up getting structured, it's like he's part of it because we had behind the scenes footage of him. People talk about him to death. So that was a that was a big thing, but you know it was I don't know how many people I ended up having in the dock. I think like eleven, twelve, something like that, and it ended up being, I think eighty minutes long, something to that effect, and it was uh, it was it turned out really really good. I was really proud of it. I mean it it almost broke me in post production because I was editing almost twenty four hours straight for like four days. Wow. Trying to get yeah, I was if you, if my mother was here, she could attest because at one point I'm sitting. I had a, a separate office at the time, and I she came in one morning to like give me breakfast or something, and I'm sitting there on the couch in the in the editing room, and I'm just kind of like spaced out. I don't even know where I am or what's going on. And she's like, "Mike, are you okay?" And I'm like, "What goddamn day is this?" <laughs> you know, it was that that was really exhausting. Although I would top that many times over since then that that feels like a great time now comparatively but uh so yeah and universal ended up doing this they ended up hiring a friend of mine to do the artwork for it and uh we we did this really great two disc set and it was a a pretty good success from what i understand a lot of people really liked it but it kind of came and went and um i always thought about releasing it here but you know the thing was it's like, well, is Warner Brothers going to get pissed off? This was before like Never Sleep Again had come out and Crystal Lake Memories, and and people were kind of doing their own docs about major horror franchises on their own, and not so much with you know worrying about what the studio had to say, because it, it's tricky. You have to get fair use and all that, and you have to make sure your footage is used a certain way because it could be a problem. But so I never, and also I just got busy. I just got really busy with a lot of stuff, and it just sort of sat on the back burner for a long time. And then a couple years ago. Second Sight in the UK sub-licensed creep show from Universal, and they asked for the documentary, and I gave them because I shot the documentary in HD. Mm-hmm. This is 2006 or seven when I did it. Actually, between 2006 and 2007, so shooting in HD was not the norm back then. But I was shooting in HD back then. I was just posting in standard def, so I had the doc, all the footage in, in HD. So what? little money uh, second sight was able to give me because now the budgets are even smaller than the smallest budgets were back then. I used that to go back in and essentially recut the whole documentary shot for shot, exactly matching it, but using it, putting it in HD redoing the graphics in HD and just doing it. And so now I have a perfectly great HD master of it. I'm thinking, okay, well that's, uh, that's nice to have. And then that, that kind of got me thinking about, well, maybe I should just go ahead and do it because by this time, you know, uh, Andrew Cash and Dan Ferens have done just amazing work with Never Sleep Again and the Crystal Lake Memories documentaries. They've come out, have done very well. And so I thought, you know, it's done. It's ready to go. Why don't I go ahead and put it out? And, I mean, it's it's it, it makes perfect sense to go ahead and do this now because the documentary is not getting any younger. And it's a good piece. It's something that no one – And I mean, aside, unless you have a region-free player and you've imported it, you've not seen it in this country. And I just felt like now's the time to go ahead and do it because uh, otherwise, you know, another year is going to pass by. But the the problem is, of course, authoring a Blu-ray and authoring there's expenses in that. And I, so that's why I've got the Indiegogo campaign. It's not really to make the documentary. It's essentially a, a glorified pre-order is basically what it is. So if you place – if you submit $25 to the campaign, you're essentially pre-ordering the disc when it finally comes out. Now, I'm hoping that to be by the end of the year. could be closer to the first quarter of next year at this point, but that's mostly because of some of the extras that we're planning for. it. What are some of those extras? Well, I can tell you about some of them. I can't tell you about all of them. Um, but there's going to be a pretty, a pretty nice array of stuff on there. I'm going to, of course, do an audio commentary for it because there are a lot of interesting stories – about the making of it and how it came together. Some of the stuff I've even told you here. I also have some audio interviews that I did that are some people who were not in the documentary. 
And because I, I, well, it was one thing I debated about, do I go back in and add new interviews to the documentary? Do I spruce it up? Do I add new graph? Do I do a, and I eventually decided against it because I thought, no, it's what it is. It, it, it's, that's the thing I shot in and I did in 2007. I'm very proud of it and I don't want to change it. And it would feel weird to go back now and cause I'm not the same. I don't do things the same as I did back then. So it would be weird for me to, to go back and shoot new interviews now that to try to fit in with that. And it's like, no, let that thing be itself and I'll just add stuff to the disc. So there's going to be some interviews, um, sort of a separate audio commentary track that have like audio interviews with people that actually some of that was on the second site disc, uh, with some of the people like, uh, Daryl Ferrucci who assisted Tom Savini, uh, John Applis who played Nathan Grantham in father's day. So there's going to be some audio interviews there. There's going to be an interview with Mike Gornick. Um, that's going to be on there as well. Cause he wasn't available at the time I did the documentary. There's going to be extended interview clips with probably about five or six of the people that I, I interviewed because there was stuff that had to get left out. Uh, one of them is like Bernie Wrightson because he goes into uh, some pretty nice detail about EC Comics and what he his experience was with it. And, and I, none of that could really make the documentary, so there will be that on there. And um, Also, I'm going to have to talk to Tom about this, but I want to include some of his behind-the-scenes footage because uh, we use it on the disc, but I, I want to double-check and make sure it's cool before using it on this. But I'm, you know, I'm sure hopefully we can work something out. And so there'll be that stuff, and then there's going to be, uh, we're going to be shooting it in the end at the end of uh, I don't know, it's like the second or last, the third week of September. We're going to shoot uh, Horrors Hallow Grounds for with Sean Clark. We're going to go to Pittsburgh and shoot locations uh, for Pitts for uh, for Creep Show because that'll never happen otherwise either. So why not do it for this documentary? And then there's a couple, there's some archival stuff, some old news program footage from Creep Show that I'm going to get. And so it's going to be a lot of just like really arcs. Like I can't use like the theatrical trailer. Um, I mean, I guess I probably, I doubt that Warner brothers would care, but you know, why poke the bear? And then there's, you know, there's like, there's deleted footage, but it's like, well, that I don't own that. So you gotta, you get, that's what, that's where you gotta be careful. You gotta make sure that you don't step over the line and start marketing stuff you don't really own. And that was, that's the fight with using, doing a documentary in fair use. It's like, okay, you can use the clips, but you can only use them for so long and they have to be within the context of what the people are talking about and you have to clear the music and all that. So fortunately I had done all that legwork pretty much already with this documentary because I was at the time I did it. I didn't want to piss off Warner brothers in any way. So I edited it in such a way that I relied mostly on a lot of behind the scenes photos I had and a lot of behind the scenes footage I had and it just kind of quick portions of clips. So there's really not, fortunately it doesn't look like I'm going to have any problem in that area. So how's the campaign going for you? It, it's kind of stalled out at the moment, mostly because the last couple of weeks I've just been in post-production hell on four major projects and I haven't had a chance to really goose it up yet and uh, get some more announcements out about the special features that are going to be on it. And there's going to be one big announcement, one special feature that's going to be on it that I'm going to announce probably in about two or three weeks. Uh, hopefully, like maybe the last couple of weeks of the campaign to kind of really give it the final goose. But I'm at, I think, like about $1,200 right now of the 10000 And that all came within the first few days of the announcement. So, And I've, I haven't really done – I've been kind of lax in getting another wave of publicity about it. So that's hopefully what this will help to do. The ten thousand is really to cover the expenses of authoring the the Blu-ray. There's probably going to be a DVD that we're going to have. It's like it's not going to have everything that's going to be on the Blu-ray, but there's going to be a, a limited edition DVD that will be available through one specific retailer. But I'm working on that deal right now, and then the Blu-ray is going to come after that, and then uh, that'll have its own exclusive features and its own stuff that the DVD won't have. And so that'll be – there's those expenses of an authoring those because you don't want to just do them like DVD-Rs and stuff like that. You want to do the real thing. you got to do a licensing fee for the Blu-ray because Sony owns that. And then there's the production of Horace Hallow Grounds. There's the production of the other stuff. There's all this other – that kind of totals up, and I need to kind of get some of those expenses covered ahead of time. That's why I'm doing – like I said, which is essentially a glorified pre-order. Over the years after you did Just Desserts, did you ever get a chance to speak to Stephen King? No. No, and it was. I'm trying again for this. I'm um, I'm trying again to see if there's maybe some chance of him doing something. I'm not holding out any hope. 
Um, I don't want to speak for him and say why he's not doing it. I don't know why. I'm not sure if it's something that was so long ago he doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, from all intents and from everything I've heard from everybody else, it was a good experience for him. He had a lot of fun. Um, so I don't know if that's it or if he's just not really up for doing a lot of interviews. Because if you think about it, unless he's promoting a book, he's not really out there that much. I mean, he'll do lectures and stuff and, and stuff with universities and, you know, and associated with charities and stuff. But he's not on a lot of the DVDs of his movies either, even the ones he helped write or produce. So, you know, it's not like he's singling me out for not doing anything. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we'll get something. We'll, we'll get something with him. But again, I, that's that's kind of pie in the sky for me right now. So I, I, you know, so if nothing ends up with Stephen King on there, if you're listening, I tried, I gave it my best shot. But you know, I don't know if time has softened him on talking about it or not. You've been doing this for over ten years now. What have been? I know Just Desserts is up there, but what have been some of your other favorites that you've done? God, there's so many. I've been lucky. I've been really lucky in terms of the projects I've worked on that they've all been interesting in one way or another and all been really fascinating and great. Certain ones mean certain – there were certain landmarks. Neither of the Demons because it was my first. Effects because it was my first long-form documentary. Uh, Chainsaw Massacre because it was I was working on Chainsaw Massacre and Chainsaw 2 was my first studio project Monster Squad because it changed the course of my career really and also it was a Monster Squad I've been trying to get I mean I was trying to help acquire that movie for Anchor Bay for years and the rights were so complicated on that that no one could ever really get a hold of it and it finally got sorted out you know Creepshow is obviously one uh, another great one was Savage Streets because uh, I did I got to meet Danny Steinman the director and he had been something of a mythic figure because no, he had disappeared. He had done. He did basically. He did the unseen, which he had his name taken off of. He did Savage Streets and then Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, which is still my favorite Friday the Thirteenth. And then he disappeared. No one knew what happened to him. And a couple people helped track him down. And I called him up, and he said he would do the commentary. I actually went out to his place. He was living in Dover, Delaware at the time, and I recorded a commentary with my friend Scooter McRae. We went out to his apartment. I met him. It's the first time, and he he had no idea that anyone gave a crap about his work. And it was just amazing to meet this guy that I've always wondered about for like 20 years. Like, who is this guy? Who 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 was this? I mean, he, he did a he did a he was in he did a, a porno film back when he first started out called High Rise. And you would think, oh my God, the guy who did Savage Streets and Friday Five did a porno. It must be the sleaziest thing ever. No, it's actually the sweetest, most optimistic, nicest porn you've ever seen in your life. It was only when he did the mainstream movies that he got kind of sleazy about it. So I was like, well, that's weird. And I went to a convention with him a couple times, and it was really just a really one of those things. I was like, thank God I got to do that. Um, Pumpkinhead was another one that was a big deal because that was the first time I worked with uh, Anya Light, who was my regular producer for years. And we were doing that right when Stan Winston died. And we, we didn't know. no one, and, and we weren't able to get a hold of him. And it was like, oh, man, what's going on? So to be able to do that and have it be something, a tribute to his legacy on that film was really important. Uh, I mean, God, Faces of Death, that was another one that surprised me. I, I never liked Faces of Death. I was, you know, it was one of those things you see as a dare as a kid, like, oh, Faces of Death. And But I did the commentary with the real director of it, who still won't use his real name. But I learned so much about the making of it. during the, After the commentary was over, it's like, I actually admire this thing now. It's like, wow, there was a lot of skill that went into making this. I mean, I may not enjoy watching it, but you got to admire the craft. Neither Creeps was a huge, huge thing. Because that fine, it was the last thing I ever did for Sony, and I managed to convince them to do it. And getting to work with Fred Decker again, like I did on Monster Squad, was just, just wonderful. And, and getting to do, you know, working with Tom Atkins again. I worked with Tom Atkins several times, and actually, Tom Savini. I work with him. I've known Tom. Tom and I are actually really good friends now. And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that because he and I have done interviews like two or three times a year for the last ten years. Because there's always something he worked on that I need to go film. I just had him in my house here, like four months ago to do blood sucking pharaohs in Pittsburgh for the UK. Cause it's like, I just called him and said, Tom, you're going to be in town. Great. Come by. There's something we, it's like, you know, so it's like, it's amazing how these, you end up making friends with people cause you just, you're, you're in the regular orbit with them. So, I mean, those have always been special. Um, trying to think of what I got. There's so many, I mean, it's just like the, the two Romero films shooting on those, the uh, evil dead two. That was a big, big project. And that, you know, Halloween three, the ones I tend to remember, the ones are the ones where like 
Halloween three, that movie has been dissed and disrespected for so many years. And only now is are people kind of coming around to the fact this is actually a really interesting, unique movie. And so to be able to, to document sort of it's finally it's rebirth sort of it's reappreciation was really important um that was just uh that was just fantastic and then trying to think what else like on the howling i didn't do a whole lot on the howling but i did a commentary with the author gary brandner and we didn't really talk about the movie that much because he really wasn't involved in the movie at all but we just did sort of a a long-form talk about his whole career and then he, he passed away like three months later and so it ended up being like oh my god i'm so glad i had the opportunity to do that I did a commentary with producer Sean Cunningham on the horror show on Friday the 13th at a convention in uh, in uh, Kentucky. I was just like, well, that's weird. Uh, and, I, and like Day of the Dead. And then I got to work on, uh, you know, Invaders from Mars. I did a commentary with Toby Hooper, The Dark Half. Uh, you know, the producers cut a Halloween 6. Curtains, that was another big one. That, it's like, where has this movie been all this time? And Don May at Synapse fought hard and long to get it, and he managed to, you know, resuscitate it from the negatives and everything. So the, I, I could go on and on and on, and there's so many. I mean, they all have been so rewarding in their own way. Those are the ones that kind of just spring to mind. I'm sure I'm forgetting about 10 or 12 others. Yeah, your filmography is crazy. There are so many titles on there. There are, yeah. I was just looking on my website, and it's it's interesting. Like, 2011, I had like 11 projects, and then 2012, I had about the same amount, but they were bigger in scope. They were much larger projects, and then 2013, I have 30. So, what the hell happened in 2013? And then I go back down to a regular size in 2014. That this year is going to be even bigger than probably. 2013. I mean, there's just so many little ones, and then there's some. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Every year, I keep thinking, well, I think this may be the last year I do this because, you know, the market's maturing; it's becoming different. But no, it it just keeps going and going and going. So that's great, uh, and it's it's brought me into contact with a lot of amazing people over the years. I mean, just it's amazing how few negative experiences I've really had in terms of the, the cast and the crews of these things. I mean, there's a few, but. Nothing compared to the amount of wonderful people that I've gotten to work with. Well, it sounds like the death of physical media has been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, I mean, I see an article about that every year. And I think it's the same article. They just put a new date on it. And they just changed the format names around because they've been saying that for years. I mean, it's no one's going to buy this anymore. It's streaming all the way. Well, look, I like streaming. I love services like Vudu and Netflix and all that. And it it allows you to see movies you might not otherwise be able to see. I think it's just now in its infancy in terms of the way we can distribute new films and monetize that process and get money to the filmmakers directly and sort of bypass a lot of the conventional distribution avenues that have been available. But there's always going to be, and I know I'm, I'm one and I know a lot of people are, they want to have the thing in their hands. They they want to have a collection. They want to have it's like having books on your shelf. They want to ha- you want to have movies on your shelf, and there's it's in a weird way it's becoming a collector's market again. It was this was back when laser discs were the avenue for for collectors with the Criterion discs and some of the deluxe editions that would come out on laser disc. You'd pay a really exorbitant uh, 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 you know fee, but you were getting something really special and deluxe. It's kind of reverting back that way now. Which is, I think, a good thing because it means there's an inexhaustible supply of films that can support that sort of avenue. But it also means that there's not going to be the, – the, the product can get better. And people, I think, are getting a little more used to the fact that, okay, we're going to do a lot more for this. You may have to pay a few extra bucks, but it's not because we're trying to gouge you. It's because it's more expensive to do it now and it's we're making it more special. So I think that that's always going to be I, – I don't see physical media really going away. I just see it sort of crystallizing into its own – it might eventually just become a niche market again, which is not – like I said, not a bad thing, especially with the companies that have been able to foresee that and have been pitching to that market the entire time. The studios aren't the ones they are going to care or worry about that. You know, they they never really have. They're, they only really got into the DVD bandwagon because it became just a huge source of income for them. But once it matured, they were just kind of like, oh, then we don't care. So it's interesting. And again, I don't fault them for that because it's multinational global organizations. They They got bigger fish to fry. If you could, what are some of your dream projects to do? What are some of the movies that you would love to do special features for? 
there, you know what? There aren't as many as there used to be because I've been able to do by my count about 60 dream projects. Uh, you know, just films that I like monster squad and I, the creeps, I never thought in a million years I'd ever get to be able to, to have them on DVD or Blu-ray let alone actually produce the documentaries and the discs. But you know, I'm almost afraid to say what they would be because it's like, well, then if they they don't happen, it's disappointing. Or if they happen with someone else. But at the end of the day, the main thing is that they come out. I would love to see a real proper special edition of The Exorcist 3, um, which I think is a, a, still a vastly underrated horror movie. And it's actually one of the most smartly written and most beautifully acted uh, horror films I've ever seen. I love that movie to death. And there's an amazing amount of stories about the production of that uh, that would be wonderful. And the sad thing is with that movie, fact, I was just talking about this with someone the other day. So much of the cast is gone. I mean, George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, Jason Miller, they're all gone. And, you know, Vivica Linfors, I mean, these people have been gone for a long time. I think Brad Dourif is the only, la- maybe the last remaining cast member from that movie who's still around, the, ma- the of the major cast. So it's just, you know, you, you want to get these stories around, you know, Bill Blatty's getting up there these days too. So it's like, I want to, I would love to see a documentary done about Exorcist three, but that's, that's a high profile thing for, for Morgan Creek and Warner brothers. So that they're, but they don't, you know, I, I don't know why they, they haven't chosen to go ahead and do it. Cause it's, to me, it would be found money. It's exorcist. You know, you put that out there, there's a, a whole, a whole amount of people that would be willing to just go for that. Even if they've never heard of exorcist three, um, but you know, maybe that'll happen tomorrow. Who knows? It, it could be, and I, I don't care at the end of the day, if I get to do it, great. If someone else gets to do it, that's great too. So I would say that, that one more than that one. And I would love, again, it's, it's Scott's Warner brothers. Again, I love Joe versus the volcano with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I think that movie is criminally misunderstood and I would love to see a real proper special edition of that. And I would also love to see a special edition of my favorite teen comedy or actually it's it's got action and drama in it too but my favorite one of all time is three o'clock high i would love to see that done properly because there's a lot of amazing stories on that one as well and so those are those are the three that come to mind so if they get done by someone else great that just means i get to own them and enjoy them myself and i because actually if i work on them i never want to watch the movies again it's just like you get say, like, oh God, I don't want to ever see this movie as long as I live. I'm going through that right now on Army of Darkness, and uh, that's you know that one I'm not going to ever want to watch again after after everything. I feel bad for my editor on that. God, he's probably sick and tired of it beyond belief. But uh, that's yeah, you, you get you get worn out on these movies for a while, but you, you can go back to them eventually after the the pain of their production goes away. So not only are you the head honcho at Red Shirt Pictures, the maker of all of these documentaries over the years, but you were also the ultimate film fanatic. <laughs> oh, God, you know that's eleven years old now. That that kills me. I, I can't believe it's been that long since that show was on the air. Since we did that thing, I know. Did you ever? Did you watch that? Oh yeah. Oh my God, that was an amazing experience. I don't know if you want to hear anything about that really, but. Yeah, I would love to hear your experience on being on that show. That was it. Yeah, I mean, for those of you who have never heard of the show, and I'm I'm assuming that's probably most of you, um, back in 2004, IFC started up this game show called Ultimate Film Fanatic, which was essentially a game show for film geeks. And the way it worked was they held auditions in several regions of the country, and then the people they picked, they flew out to L.A., and then they did a series of shows all in a row over the course of, a, like, three or four days. And... Every show was a region of the country, so they did the South, the Midwest, the Northeast, the West Coast, uh, you know, the, the the Northeast or whatever the hell it was. I forget the regions they used, and all those people on those re- representing those regions would compete together till there was one person, and then the winner from all those various regions would appear on a finale, and then one person would be selected uh, as the ultimate film fanatic. And the basic format was. A trivia first round, you answer trivia questions, they whittle it down. Second round was a film debate where you would put two of you together and you'd have to debate, I think the greatest movie of all time is this. No, I think the greatest movie of all time is this. And then a panel of three judges would judge whether or not you won or lost the debate. And then two people from that process would go on to the final round, which was the film 
forget what they called it. it was like the the uh, the your, your, you brought your your geekiest items that you owned with you, and you told the stories about how you got them or what they mean to you or the uniqueness of them, and then those same three judges would judge which of you had the cooler item, and then the winner of that was the the winner of that particular show. And it was an interesting process because I, I, I get I went out and I auditioned here. I got picked, flown out to L.A. And, you know, I'd never been on a game show before or done anything like that before in my life. It's amazing. I mean, this was small scale. It was a small studio, small audience. They put you out there. And I'll never I'll never make fun of anyone again who blows it on an easy answer in a game show. Because when you get those lights thrown on you and the cameras are rolling and the audience is cheering and the host is there with the thing and – you get you don't remember your fucking name. You don't remember who you are, how you got there, what the hell's going on. And then they're throwing questions at you. It's like everything's running in very slow motion. And so even like softball questions become the hardest things you ever had to answer in your life. I remember one question they asked me was name the famous action star actor who died tragically while making the crow. Now, everyone out there who just heard that just went Brandon Lee, give me a fucking break. Yeah, except Lights, camera, audience, pressure's on. It's They say that to you and you're like, The Crow, I've seen that movie. Yeah, I've seen that movie. It's a bird. The Crow's a bird and the bird's in the movie and there's a guy. And there was a guy, he had the bird on, there was a bird around the guy and he died. I remember the guy died. The guy died. He was sad. That was sad. I remember that was really sad. Oh, that was sad. I liked that movie. Oh, wait a minute. I got to answer the question. What was the guy's name? You know, it, was, it was the son of the guy, Bruce Lee, Brandon Lee, Brandon Lee. And all this has to take place in like three seconds. So, but during those three seconds, you can be guaranteed I'm just like, uh, dick, uh, and it's just, uh, it was an, that, and then the debate thing was amazing for me because I, I had to go up and that was challenging for me because my debate round was, or at least one of them was, um, what's the best film of all time? I picked Raiders of the Lost Ark. The other guy picked Lawrence of Arabia. Now I can't argue against Lawrence of Arabia. That is an impossible debate to win. If you argue that Lords of Arabia, no, it's not that great. Yeah, you've lost. So I just had to pimp out Raiders of the Lost Ark as much as I could. The other guy made, I think, the mistake of kind of bashing Raiders. And that's what made me the winner on that because they went, you were more passionate about the film you chose rather than attacking the other guy. And then I brought like a couple of artwork pieces. I had a Book of the Dead. I had a, 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 a shrink wrap copy of Dawn of the Dead that I bought at the Monroeville Mall where it was filmed. And there's just that got me through. And then the finale came about, went through all that. And the, the most, the stress, oh man, the most stressful part of that was uh, their second round on the finale was they line up all the, actually it was the first round, excuse me, the first round. They line up all the, the seven finalists. And they, they give you a category, and the category is Cameron, Cameron, and Cameron. And, the, and that means you need to name a film directed by James Cameron, written by Cameron Crowe, or starring Cameron Diaz. And they just go down the line from one person to the next until someone either gets it wrong, repeats an answer, or just spaces out. That was tough because, I mean, down that round in particular – and they ended up cutting it out for the television because it went on too long, and that pissed me off because it was just exhausting. We went through everything. They, they, we must have gone through like six or seven rounds of that. And now, like someone even one of the guys even brought up the wildlife and like uh, you know everything that camera. And we were we were running on empty. And I answered once, and if it had come around to me again, I was out because I couldn't come up with anything. But fortunately. Uh, someone else blew an answer and they, I didn't come back to me, but that I'm just sweating bullets. Like I've, I'm out. I got nothing else. And I think it turns out none of us said Titanic. We just, <laughs> we, all, we all fucking missed Titanic. I was like, how the hell did we do that? And that was one of those ones where it's like, we assume, I think at some point we lost track of people's answers and everyone must've just assumed, well, someone must've said Titanic. How the hell would, and no one ever, no one ever said it or it was something to that. It was like one big obvious movie. And then uh, it came down to me and another film, another film fanatic from uh, Arizona named Mark Bayer, who I still talk to, by the way. Uh, very different from me. He lived a very different life and, and kind of come at, came at film obsession in a very different way. Really liked him. And we were then taken for the finale. And the finale was meeting the big celebrity. You talk with him for like an hour over dinner at a steak at like a really pricey steakhouse. They film it, and at the end, he makes the decision who the ultimate film fanatic was. And the celebrity was Peter Fonda. 
Oh wow! And that was that was intense because we were downstairs beforehand, and, and everyone, and me and Mark are like, "Who could it be?" It's a film legend, and we went over every name we could think of, and somehow, and Peter Fonda never came up. So when the menu, he's like sitting there with the menu up, menu comes down, and it's Peter Fonda, and we were both like, "How the fuck did we not know it was Peter Fonda? We should have thought of this." And it was really interesting. He was cool. He was really nice, and it was tense as hell. I don't remember what the hell I ate. I'm sure there was a steak involved, but I, I don't remember. And at the end of it, he picked me. And what what was strange was they told us right before – because they, they took a break before – he went off to kind of think about what he was going to do. And they were going to come in, film him saying, and the film fanatic is such and such. Before that, they told me and Marcus said, whoever he picks, when he hands you the second part of – you know, that he had to attach this – you want to – the bottom half of the statue when you won your 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 uh, your region, and then the top half would be awarded to whoever was the ultimate film fanatic. So he's going to hand you the top half of the statue. You put it on there, turn to this camera, and give an acceptance speech. And this was done like five minutes before we rolled. And I'm like, I'm like, uh, acceptance speech. What the hell am I going to say? I don't know. I shit. So get going. He picks me. Hands me the statue. I'm floored. I'm just like beyond. I'm just like exhausted and like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I turned to the camera and I ended up giving a speech that thanked my father um, for introducing me to movies and not just introducing me to movies that were coming out when I was growing up, but showing me films like The African Queen and showing me them and the thing and the films he grew up with. And I said, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have an appreciation for cinema as a whole. Not just the stuff that I was growing up with as a kid, not just Star Wars and stuff like that. I was getting an appreciation for everything that had come before. And if it hadn't been for him, I would never have had that. And that was something I never said to him. I, 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 it was something kind of unsaid between the two of us how much that meant. And I was choking up. I, I didn't, Again, this was all unplanned. And I said it. We wrapped and I, I ended up flying – or actually I took the train home. I wanted to do a train trip home to the – uh, instead of flying, and I went home, and I called my dad, and I wasn't supposed to tell him I won, but I called him. I said, "Look, I thanked you at the end of this thing, and I meant to. I've always wanted to tell you this." And he was really, he got really kind of choked up, and I think he finally understood. Oh man, I, I guess I did have an impact on my son. You know, I was like, because this was before I was doing all the documentary stuff, and he he used to do stuff like that for his job way back in the day. I would watch him edit. I would, well, he would do slideshows and stuff. And he was doing the same thing that I'm doing now, only with a different equipment. And I learned editing from him. I really, that's where I, that's where I learned it from. And he never knew that he really had passed that on to me. And unfortunately that show aired in, I think September, October, he got to see that uh, actually air and live. Um, and then he, the day after Thanksgiving of that year, he was sitting at his computer and he dropped dead from a heart attack. Mm. but which was he was 62 um he had some health issues but we were completely blindsided by that and what ended up happening was as a result of me having done that show and him seeing that it removed any regrets i ever would have about oh i wish i had said this to him i wish he understood what his love of movies how that translated to me how we shared that thing and that was something he had never known really truly up until that point. So I'll always be thankful to Ultimate Film, you know, that whole experience, just for that. Everything else is still great, but for that, it's priceless beyond words. And I haven't been able to watch that acceptance speech since I showed it around a few times after we it aired because there were people who didn't have IFC and wanted to watch it. And I haven't been able to watch it in like 10 years because I just get – especially after my dad died. It was just like I couldn't. So I, I, I think that that – for me was the big takeaway from that. And also my friendship with Mark, we talk well, at least once or twice a year, usually around Oscar time. And, uh, we, and he, he, that was a really great lasting friendship that's come out of that. And when it was interesting, cause at one point, Peter Fonda asked us to say things, why we thought we were better film fanatic than the other guy. And neither one of us wanted to do it. Cause we both really liked each other. So it's like, I don't want to bash him. He's a great guy. I don't care. You know, and actually if they, if he had picked Mark, I would have been disappointed. Sure. But I would have been perfectly happy with him to get it. It was a mutual admiration society, which didn't make for particularly riveting TV, I guess. Cause it was like, Oh, I hate that motherfucker. He sucks. And I couldn't do that. Cause I was like, Oh, he's a cool guy. He's a nice guy. So the show did well, actually, from what I understand, IFC was very happy with it. And they did a second season of it, uh, which I watched and I'm so glad I was on the first season. 
because the second season big celebrity judge at the end was Robert Evans. And you could just tell by watching that that he didn't know what he was judging. He thought he was like judging the next great American screenwriter or something. It was really weird. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm happy with Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda was eccentric and kind of out there too, but I could he he made sense. The, Robert, I, if I'd been sitting there in front of Robert Evans, I think I would have just gotten up at point, some point and go, "You are out of your fucking mind," and just left, and just left because it was bizarre. And I, I've always wanted to contact the two contestants on that final season. And say, was it really as insane as it played on that and that in that finale? But um, and that did well too, from what I understand. But as all things usually happen, um, IFC went through a, regi- a regime change right around the time that the second season uh, wrapped up. And even though it was, I think, their highest rated show, or at least the first season was, and I think the second season did comparable numbers or maybe even better, um, it was one of those things where, well, I didn't invent this, so screw it. And they ditched it. And so, and it was, or it didn't fit in with their vision of what they wanted IFC to be. I think that was really what happened. They was like, ah, we don't want to do a game show. We want to do something else. And so they they canceled it and it just uh, w- faded into relative obscurity. And I still get I still get recognized every now and then. I say about once a year, someone goes, "Weren't you on some game show?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I was." Um, so that was, but it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was it was just the, the just going through it. And uh, actually, a couple friends of mine ended up being on the show. A friend of mine, Eddie Samuelson, who I mentioned before, he was on the New York show. He got picked at the same time I did. And uh, a couple people who were on that show I've later run back into, a guy named John Tarani who was on, I think, the second season. Uh, I just worked with him on uh, Robot Jocks. He had some of the images, some of the, the original story, the original sketches. And it was like, oh, you're a fellow UFFer. I was like, oh, yes. So every now and then I'll bump into someone who was on that show, and it's just weird how – you know, 11 years later, many of us have actually kind of still kind of come into contact with one another. I bumped. Oh, it was funny. One of the girls who was on the, the, the Midwest show with me, uh, Eve, I volunteered at a cat rescue about three or four times a week. She came into the cat rescue one. I hadn't seen her in like 10 years. And she came into the cat rescue. And as soon as she walked in, I said, I know her. And then she went, oh, it's you. And I went, oh, you. And so I had, I mean, it was just like, oh, my God. Because they held the audition, the reason that all the I think all the Midwest people were pretty much Detroit people, because they held the uh, the Midwest audition in Detroit, which is one of the reasons I was able to do it. So it was just funny after all, ten years. It's like, oh my God, UFF comes back into my life again. For me, again, the the thing with my dad was the big. Thank God that happened for me. That's that's the big takeaway with uh, with that for me. But you know, hey, it's, it's again. How is that eleven years ago? This whole passage of time shit, I'm not a big fan of. I'm pretty sure most of the episodes are up on YouTube. I think they're all up there. So if you're if you're listening and you're interested to watch the madness that was uh, uh, Ultimate Film Fanatic, uh, please go 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 look up YouTube. I'm sure you'll find all that stuff. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. For oh, you're uh, God. Thank you for even asking. And I, I just want to you know, th- let everyone know that. It uh, the the Just Desserts documentary. It's up on Indiegogo. Please consider pre-ordering it. So I, I'm like I said, I'm calling it a glorified pre-order. So please go for it. And I want to expend a special thanks to everyone who has worked with me throughout the last ten years on all these projects. From everyone from like all my producers by name, my DPs, my editors. Just an amazing group of people who make me look good by doing absolutely fantastic work. And it has been a privilege to be able to be part of such a great network of film fans and film lovers uh, on all these various projects. And I hope to continue doing that going forward. Well, if folks missed that URL, it's going to be available over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can go over there, click on that, put in your pre-order. I already have, so I'm looking forward to seeing that disc whenever it comes out. Fantastic documentary. I do have the the European disc of it, the UK disc. So I can attest that it is a great doc and it's one of my favorite films. So being able to see the behind the scenes to it and the way that you integrated the comic book look to it and all hmm. that, just fantastic well, stuff. So this is Mike White approved basically. Yes, well, exactly. Stamp of well, approval. That's, that's all I need. Uh, that's, yep, that'll do it for go. me, man. That's great. So I know. Thank you. That's, that's, that was what I was going for. So it's nice to know. Nice to know. I might've succeeded in that, in that area. So that's good. I wouldn't be here talking with you if I thought it was crappy. That's great. 
I like that. I like that. Yeah. If it's crap, I don't want to talk about it unless I want to get to talk about what crap it is. That would have been really bad if you had sandbagged me. So I'm here to talk about your documentary. By the way, I thought it was a piece of shit. And I want to know yeah. what the hell went wrong. Uh, 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 this interview is over. That would have been a really short episode of this show. Gene Simmons on Fresh Air. Yeah, you would have just heard me trailing off. I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. I'm not doing it. Fuck Mike White. I'm out. <laughs>